So if we don't use it and show that a majority of people respect and love the outdoors and see it as an important part of the human experience, then we're all going to suffer, especially the next generation. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop, or getting up off your couch to take your kids hiking for the first time, we want you to have the motivation and inspiration you need to chase that next adventure. The Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by Camp Crate, the leaders in fully planned self-guided backpacking adventures, as well as backpacking gear rental. You can check them out at campcrate.net. So there's this new backpacking food company called Peak Refuel. And honestly, I, I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip. Y'all, it was literally the best backpacking food I've ever had in my life. I was so impressed by them that I wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners. So if you keep listening to the episode, I'll tell you how to save 20% off an order with them. Hey friends, check out Powder7.com, new sponsor for the Adventure Sports Podcast. I've worked with these guys for a couple of years, and two of my sons have bought their most recent pairs of skis there. What's cool is that while they do sell new skis, they also sell previously used demo skis. And these demo skis come with demo bindings, so no need to remount anything. And they are sold for less than half of what you would have to pay otherwise. Great deal, great website, great people. Check out powder7.com. So I uh, intended today's episode to revolve around uh, Jay's book about his expedition retracing Hannah Dustin's escape from an island on the Merrimack River after being captured by Native Americans, which is an awesome book. It's a really cool story, but Jay's a really good storyteller, and we tend to just meander and it was a great conversation but i hope you enjoy it there's not a specific topic we covered but kind of kind of some themes were the the value of of exploring with friends the value of doing what you can with the time you have and also creating a life that allows for plenty of adventure as well as carving out some time to do some really big and really cool stuff so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jay is a great guy to talk to. And if you are interested in some of his books, you know, feel free to check out his website. And also he's definitely searchable on Google and on Amazon for his books. All right, here's the conversation. Welcome to the show, everyone. Um, today I have Jay Atkinson. He is a novelist. He's an essayist. He's written for the New York Times. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on and on. You're an investigative journalist, a storyteller. You're the author of eight books, and uh, you now teach at uh, Boston University, and you basically teach people how to tell a good story. Am I right? That's the idea, my friend. That's the idea. I hope so. Yeah, well, welcome to the show, Jay. (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Mason. You know, I... I've I've read a lot of your stories now on the New York Times of of you doing honestly just some really fun creative adventures that are short term but something that people in the New England area can get out and do even in the winter time and it's really helpful because you talk about the remoteness of the experience the difficulty 
and but 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 it's not a it's not a dry textbook trip report you you put this emotion into it you put the colors into the atmosphere um what is what is that project in particular is that something you have going on long term with the new york times uh i'm doing a a few stories you know adventure travel stories for the new york times done two in the last couple of years and then we have a couple other stories that I'm pitching along with a visual artist that I work with, Joe Klementovich. At the same time, New Hampshire Magazine hired us to write a dozen 3,000-word, fully illustrated with photos and video uh, adventure stories that take place in New Hampshire. And now we're eight stories into that. Only two of them have run in the magazine already, but there's six more sitting there waiting to run. So that's good because that's the closest adventure playground to me. I live on the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border, so I can get to work at Boston University is about 30 miles away, but my rugby friends and most of the adventures in central and northern New Hampshire are within two hours to the north. So when New Hampshire Magazine said, would you like to do, you know, get paid to do a dozen stories for us um, where you don't have to drive more than 180 miles one way and go with your friends and you choose the adventures, I, what's not to like? <laughs> so how long have these been going on? I've been doing that for like a year. And then New Hampshire Magazine is a subsidiary of Yankee Magazine, which is one of the largest and most successful regional magazines in the country. And they pay more. And now they're talking to us about we can spread out into the other New England states if we come up with some good ideas. We could go to Maine. We could go to, you know, Vermont, Western Massachusetts. So I have I have plenty of work right now. Um, in terms of writing stories about outdoor experiences. But I also have to balance that with teaching three days a week at BU, reading student papers, coaching ice hockey. I mean, I'm pretty busy. Um, And during the week, I usually, on my days off and on the weekend and sometimes early mornings, I try to sneak in a quick local adventure to get my Jones satisfied for being outside as opposed to going to the gym every morning when it's dark. Um, so I try to get, you know, something in every few days. Very cool. So where did your uh, your passion for all this start? This, this all started, I come out of a competitive sports background. I played high school and collegiate sports. So when I was in high school in Methuen, Massachusetts, I played ice hockey. And we used to have to practice at 5 o'clock in the morning all winter because the rink wasn't located at the time. It wasn't located close to the high school. So we had to go to another town and and practice six days a week at 5 a.m. So that was two things happened right away when I was, you know, 16, 15, 16. I got used to getting up early and having like an ice hockey adventure before school even started. So we would be at school at 715 in the locker room at school, showered and had breakfast. And we were like bright eyed and bushy tailed. We were way ahead of all the other kids that were barely out of bed and dragging themselves to school. But what we ended up doing was during the hockey season, even though we're practicing for an hour and a half every morning, if there was ice on the lakes locally, that was perfect for skating one by one, the varsity hockey players would go to the nurse and pretend they were sick and we would get dismissed from school. And then we would all meet across town at the town forest and hike into the lake and either shovel the snow off or if it didn't have any snow on it, we would play hooky from school, basically. Played hooky to play hockey. 
And the inter- the interesting thing that began there and extends till today is there were plenty of other kids in school that we knew, friends of ours, that we played youth hockey with that weren't on the high school team. They didn't make the team or they didn't try out. And we knew other kids that were just truants. They would just fake sick and hang around outside the high school. And we never invited anyone that wasn't part of the team because all the guys on the team were athletes. And I've known them since I was 10 years old. Most of them were from my neighborhood and we all grew up together. And I trusted them in terms of if anything would go, were to go wrong in 10 degree temperatures, if there was a soft spot in the ice or whatever, I knew they would be capable of reacting without panicking. And that extends to the current day. And it was picked up again when I was in college at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. I was um, playing for the soccer team in the fall. I wrestled in the winter. I played club hockey in the winter also. And then in the spring, I played rugby. So what ended up happening most of the school year I had to either wrestle in a meet or play in a game or a match on Saturday. So Friday night, the other wrestlers, the other soccer players, depending on who I was hanging around with, guys I played hockey with up there, we couldn't go to the campus pub. We had to entertain ourselves. So what we would do in the small town in Nova Scotia on the Bay of Fundy, beautiful place, fantastic landscape, a school right out of a movie, like Dead Poets Society, like just the campus was beautiful. But there's nowhere to go. There's no nightlife. The nearest city's like an hour and a half away, and Halifax, Nova Scotia is tiny. There's nothing really going on there. So what we would do is we would sneak into the cafeteria during the athletes' dinner, and we would take cafeteria trays. And then we would uh, – the campus was arranged on a hill, steep hill, big hill. And we would fly down, like use them as sleds, and we would fly down – the entire length of the campus, you know, maybe reaching speeds of like 40 miles an hour. And then we would get to the bottom of the campus near where the athletic complex was. And there was a place called Manning Chapel, which was the sort of church and chapel on campus. And we would scale the exterior. There was a brick uh, with like crenellated brick on the corner. So there's like a one brick would stick out a little bit. The next one would be recessed. And without any, you know, ropes or safety equipment, we would just scale it and try to get up to the steeple. And then when we did that, and, no, you know, thankfully nobody got killed. When we did that, we would go down to the Bay of Fundy in the winter, um, and it would be gigantic ice flows where the tide would come in, and then some of it would break up into these giant sort of icebergs and chunks of ice, and we would kind of climb in and among them, trying to get to a high spot, so we could get a, get a glimpse of the northern lights because in Nova Scotia in the, you know, late at night, you could maybe see a glimmer on the horizon of like the, the northern lights. And so we would make a whole night out of that. So that, that whole do it yourself ethos with your teammates that came out of high school and then college and then grad school, University of Florida playing rugby there. We would go to excursions to the, uh, to the beach. And I know I wasn't a surfer, but my friends were. So Gainesville, Florida is in the middle of the state. We would go out to the beach and, you know, try to, they would try to teach me how to surf. So I've always been sort of a jack of all trades outdoors, master of none. I can't lead climb. I can't do a lot of things. Um, 
but I'll try anything. And that's one of the things about the rugby guys. They'll try anything with just the stuff they have in their garage, which is kind of the root of our whole like philosophy of getting outdoors. Yeah. yeah. So it, it sounds like an adventurous place to kind of lay the foundation for pretty much a life, a lifetime of pursuing these adventurous stories that you've done and squeezing it all in, in between basically the responsibilities of life, pursuing a career. Yeah. High school, same thing. College, same thing. I had to be places. I had to go to, in October and November, I had to go to soccer practice for two hours and then go to wrestling for two hours. Plus, maintain my academic, I had an academic scholarship, so I had to maintain my grades. So when we had that Friday night free, rather than just sit around and watch TV, we were like, let's go outside and just make our own fun. And I ran in, I got a chance to see one of my college roommates, guy I wrestled with for the first time in like 25 years. This summer, he was in New Hampshire in the White Mountains when I was there and we met and we were, I was over scouting locations for the fifth annual DIY backcountry triathlon that we do up there. And I needed to go look at this lake in the White Mountains to make sure there was access. We could get into the lake to do our swim. So Ed met me there and we sat on the dock overlooking this beautiful mountain lake, nobody around mid-September and just laughed for two hours talking about scaling Manning Chapel and all that stuff we used to do. And, you know, what I really, driving away, because he had to go in the other direction to get, you know, meet up with his wife and then go back to Canada. Driving away, I was thinking, I'm still doing it. Like, we were doing stuff together back in Nova Scotia, you know, in the late 1970s, and I'm still doing it because I'm waiting to meet my rugby friends to do the DIY triathlon. So I'm, I'm so grateful that a, I have friends that are resourceful and durable and cool headed under pressure and whom I trust with my life. And I'm, you know, still, um, doing it, still able to get outside and do these various things. And like, I'm very thankful for that because a lot of guys I went to high school with and stuff, they're, they're like watching football on TV on the weekends. Yeah, that's it's easy to do, man. So you totally went over this really interesting thing. What what the heck is the backcountry triathlon? People are going to be curious to know what that is. Well, this was an idea for a story I had for the New York Times like five five years ago, and even seven years ago, I pitched it to Appalachian Mountain Club magazine. The original DIY triathlon, I did it by myself. Um, I pitched it to the magazine, and I said I would rather than pay any entrance fees to enter one of these like obstacle races or you're paying $200 to exhaust yourself for a t-shirt. I have all friends that were college athletes and one of my best friends, I do all this stuff with Chris Pierce. He was an all American wrestler at Ithaca academic all American. He played soccer there and he's a fantastic rugby player. And we were sitting around one day after going either cross country skiing or fat biking. I can't remember and he said, why don't, you know, I go, why don't we just do our own triathlon as a group like I'd done two years earlier by myself? And he said, yeah, can you find a venue? And I said, yeah, I think so. Let me look around. So we ended up at uh, Romney, New Hampshire five years ago. I pitched it to the New York Times. And the New York Times said, this is a cool idea. Uh, they gave me, you know, 2,000 words. And they sent a photographer by the name of Joe Clementovich. And he and I have been friends ever since. But the first event that we did, 
we just rented. It's usually the first or second weekend in September after all the tourists are gone. And it's in a fairly remote part of the White Mountain National Forest, southwestern corner of the forest where not a lot of tourists go anyway. It is a rock climbing mecca. So we will see rock climbers like in the little village downtown. But out on the lake and out on the course that we use, like we never see anyone. There's no one there. And we rent a little off-season ski lodge and we fill it with like 15, 20 of my friends, their wives, many of whom are athletic and their kids. And we scale it down for the kids and usually have a couple of non-participants who will monitor the kids on the swim because the water is pretty cold by then. And what the adults will do is we'll do like a, this year it was a 1,400-yard swim, open water swim in beautiful, really cold lake called Stinson Lake. And then we do a 6.5-mile gravel grinding uh, sort of mountain bike or cyclocross ride around the lake on dirt roads and some paths. And then we climb up and down Rattlesnake Mountain, which is just 2.6-mile hike. And then we all go out to lunch together and have a couple beers, and then everybody goes home. Dang, man. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. And I've never really heard of something quite like that, especially annually. Um, has it gained any attention? So after this year's fifth annual, uh, New Hampshire Magazine wanted me to write about it. They were like, you're doing this five years now? I said, yeah. And he said, how many people know about it? And, uh, this is the editor. He said, how many people know about it? And I said, only the people that we tell. Because lots of people are like, hey, when's that triathlon thing you guys do? And I'll always be vague about what it is. Because we don't want to have a huge crowd. We want to have just the people we know and just the people we know can handle it. And it's fabulous. When we were finished, we did another thing a few weeks later, a, a river trip down the Merrimack River uh, for New Hampshire Magazine. And I was with Chris Pierce again. And he said, you know, this is our eighth weekend this year doing stuff outside together with our friends. But my favorite weekend of the year is the DIY triathlon. There's just something about the place, the venue, the events, and the family atmosphere that make it the best weekend of the year. And I looked at him over my, you know, glass of local beer, and I said, you know what, Chris, you're right. Like, I wish we were doing that every month. So like I said before, Peak Refuel is a new company making freeze-dried food. And it's literally the best freeze-dried meals I've ever had. You can use it for backpacking, camping, hunting, whatever you want to use it for. And these folks are the real deal. They spent over two years researching the market and creating the perfect recipes. And it is just absolutely awesome. I used the meals on my last guided trip. The people on the trip could not even believe that it was freeze-dried food. Literally, you put a cup of water in it. It's like a cup or a cup and a half. It's, it's not very much water. And it tastes like it came from a restaurant. That's how good it is. If you're interested in ordering some yourself, you can get 20% off by going to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout. I encourage you, go get some, try it for yourself. It's amazing. This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder with a great idea for gifting our state this season. Don't get mad at me. My latest Colorado book actually takes the color out of colorful Colorado. Carpets of purple columbine, forests of yellow aspens, and buff-colored herds of elk are rendered in black, white, and gray. You'll be mesmerized by the edges, shapes, and textures of our most beautiful of states. You'll love it. 
Visit johnfielder.com to see my new book, Colorado Black on White. That's johnfielder.com. So this backcountry um, triathlon, so you keep kind of the location a secret, and it's an annual thing, but you have no aspiration to, to open it up to more people. Um, have you noticed any sort of similar events popping up around around that area? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, because I have written about it, you know, first for the Times, and that's like a million readers. Well, yeah, that'll that'll grow it. And then New Hampshire Magazine, you know, I wrote the story, but it won't be, it won't run until next August, probably next August or next September. And we post pictures on social media, but we don't put up like, usually I won't put up, hey, the DIY triathlon is in three weeks because I know people that I barely know will say, hey, can I come? <laughs> so right, right. one of the things, one of the messages in the article is why give your money to corporations when you can just set up a course for yourself. And there are some that are, have barely any overhead, the metallic race, which is a 50 mile multi-sport event. I think it's uh, paddling, mostly mountain biking and trail running up, up in Colebrook, New Hampshire. And that's one of my friends, uh, Bridget Freudenberger. She runs that with like a staff of just herself and her dog. And the entry free fee that they charge, they charge a modest entry entry fee and it covers like hamburgers and a keg of beer and a t-shirt i met her by accident she's an ironman triathlete and we've we met through the photographer joe clementovich and we have invited her she's like the only non-rugby playing member besides joe of our group and then this year uh and last year i invited boston university students that uh, had just graduated to join us. And one kid, Andy Halleck from Minnesota, who grew up playing hockey, he's a musician. He just graduated from BU in the communication college, like in the college of communication last spring. And I said, Hey, do you, and, and I knew his girlfriend too. I had her in class. I said, do you and Betsy want to do the DIY triathlon with us? And his eyes went like really big. He goes, are you kidding? Absolutely. He goes, you've been talking about it for four years. I want to do it. <laughs> so that, in that instance, other people are like, you know, how come you get to invite other people? I go, because I'm the founder. <laughs> Man. And I, I think when you are outdoors, when you're in the in the backcountry or you're in the wilderness or you're even in, like, your local town forest, you interpret the landscape through the people that you're with. And that makes the experience, takes it to another level. The other thing I like to do, uh, which drives my family members crazy, is I like to do a lot of stuff alone, too. So yeah, I don't yeah. go do organized races where there's a whole hassle of people I don't know and probably don't care to know. Um, I'm getting more and more like, I think I'll just get a cabin in the woods and uh, be a hermit and just invite my friends up on the weekends because – when I do solo things, I might go ride my mountain bike up in the trails near Forest Lake, which is where I live in Massachusetts. And until the end of October, I'll swim outside. So I'll either go for a trail run or a trail ride by myself to get hot enough to put my wetsuit on and then dive in this cold water and swim, you know, across and back. And people freak out when they say, you're doing that by yourself. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for 10 years, usually on Sundays. For the most part, 
if you're if you've done it a lot and you don't panic easily, you have a wetsuit on, if you get a stitch or if you get, you know, really fatigued, you can float. You can just flip over on your back, don't panic. Float until you get your energy back and then then keep swimming. The only time I'll get out of the water is if I see an electrical storm coming. Otherwise I'll swim and uh so I'm enjoying the enjoying the landscape in that instance through the lens of just my own experience. So when I get together, say, once a month with my rugby friends to go do a three-day thing up in the White Mountains, it's even richer. It's like taking my individual perception of the landscape and merging it with theirs. Last year for New Hampshire Magazine, we went up to North Conway, New Hampshire, which is a big you know, destination for tourists in the White Mountains, and we identified, identified a lake that was about two miles from a trailhead Um and we went and scouted it like on a Friday um, and we saw that it was skatable. We could play pond hockey there. And, but then the next day when all the guys were going to knock off work early on the Friday morning and come up and meet me there, temperature dropped to like 10 below zero. So it was oh too late to call God. it off. Yeah. No so problem. it was, and everybody took the day out of work and a lot of them are lawyers and, you know, uh, paralegals, and then there's a guy who's a fireman, there's another guy who owns a physical therapy business. They can't take the next Friday off. They have to do it that week. They said they were not going to be there, so they got to go. So we all meet at the trailhead, and we have our snowshoes, our hockey gear, um, you know, extra layers, all the stuff we need because it's all people that know what to bring. And I remember getting out of the car at the trailhead. And I had one, and I had this kid that I know who's my best friend from college, his son, who's an athlete. He was with me. We get out of the car, and I see my, my, one of my rugby friends is there just minutes ahead of me, and he's unloading his stuff from his, from his truck and putting it on a snowbank. And I go, this is going to be great. Like, I'm trying to be enthusiastic about it. This is going to be fantastic. And Jason looks at me and says, I was more optimistic about the Shackleton expedition. <laughs> which was the famous expedition to like the North Pole where we oh, like well, that's that's not good to hear you know? as the tri- as the yeah. as the planner. <laughs> but it was a fantastic day. That story's gonna run next month in Hampshire magazine because we hiked in with snowshoes, carrying hockey sticks, skates, and then, you know, had backpacks with water and we had matches and we were gonna pick up dead wood, light a fire. So we got there, needed to be shoveled off. So we had four shovels with us. We had about 12 people we shoveled for two hours so now it doesn't feel cold anymore because you're shoveling snow and it makes you you know it's full body exercise we we dig a fire pit off on the shore and just in the snow and then we get a big roaring fire going so if you're tired you can just skate right over there and stay on the ice and warm yourself from the fire it's close enough to the water and we just played all day very funny it ended up because it was rugby guys and ended up being full contact. So there was people going ass over tea kettle into the snow banks and stuff. It was awesome. And then we gathered around by the fire, had something to eat, had, had a beer, sun went down, put on our headlamps and we hiked out. It was like probably the most um, vivid eight hour experience of the last 14, 15 months was that, that trip. Wow, that's that's quite a statement. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff that we've done since then. And even, you know, the DIY triathlon and the 
in the uh, Lake Umbagog, which is up near the Canadian border. We camped in a real remote spot there and swam across the lake in heavy fog. Like we did some cool things, but that pond hockey game sort of like merged my youth with my adulthood. As my friends would like to point out, it merged your youth with your dotage now that you're like ready for uh, the nursing home. <laughs> that's what they, that's how uh, rugby players deal with each other uh, in terms of like the more they give you, the better they like you. It's funny because I noticed that like I'm really polite to people that I don't really know that well. But with my friends, the ones I really have been around a long time, like I just constantly give them a hard time. <laughs> and uh, because a lot of times, too, when you do these trips, you're together for a few days and like you have to be able to get along. You have to be able to like if you're going to be in a tent that's got a, barely enough room for two people in it, you better be in that tent with somebody that you can get along with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, that's awesome. So, you know, you have a balance. You enjoy these adventures with your friends, but you also like doing them alone. Uh, I'm the same way. You know, when I first started doing, I started doing adventures alone and then started involving people. And it was a little bit of stress, like, oh, man, is this going to take away? And I realized when you find the right people, it definitely enhances the experience. With the wrong it people, it totally ruins it. Um, it's miserable. Miserable. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I just, just wish this person would just quit or leave or something. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, so it's, a, it's finding that balance. Um, but one journey that you did with a friend is uh, you paddled this river. In, in the cold and it, it was a story that intrigued me and you and you wrote a book about it do you want to get into a, what that story is and why you decided to do that venture in particular yeah the book is kind of a departure for me it's called massacre on the merrimack hannah dustin's captivity and revenge in colonial america so it's a historical narrative and it takes place where i grew up I grew up in Bethune, Massachusetts, but back in the 17th century when Hannah Dustin was alive, 1697, Methuen was part of Haverhill, Massachusetts, and she was taken captive during uh, the battle for the, for the frontier between the English colonies and the French colonies. She and 12 of her towns, fellow townspeople that lived in Haverhill were taken captive by mercenary Tarantine Indians from uh, warriors from the main river tribes that were hiring themselves out to the French to go harass the frontier. So they hit Haverhill, Massachusetts, was a settlement close to the Merrimack River, uh, near the coast of the, you know, the Atlantic coast, so not far from the ocean, but about 15 miles inland. And they, they hit the town early in the morning. They killed 27 men, women, and children, scalped some of them. And then they took 13 captives. And Hannah Dustin and her week old baby was, were one of the captives. It was um, March, it was March 15, 1697, which in this part of New England, especially as I did research over the last four years, I would be out there during that same period of time, you know, on snowshoes or cross country skis or on my fat bike. And it was always winter around this part of the state, right where she was taken captive. And then they force marched her and her townspeople, the ones that survived the march, about 80 miles, they were north of Concord, New Hampshire, kind of like halfway between where they were taken captive and where the Indians were trying to take them, where the Abenaki were trying to get them 
was up to the French colony to get paid. Uh, the equivalent of, I think it was 50 livres was the denomination they used, the French used. And they would get 50 livres for a live captive and 25 for a scalp. So when they got far enough away from the English colony and knew that no one was following them, they let their guard down. And then on this tiny little island called Sugarball Island, at the confluence of the Merrimack River and the Contoocook River in New Hampshire, Hannah Dustin, a 14-year-old boy who'd been taken captive from another community, and her 51-year-old neighbor rose up in the middle of the night and killed 10 of the Abenaki, two uh, warriors, two women, and six children. They, they bludgeoned them to death. And what probably happened first was they bludgeoned the two warriors to death to try to eliminate the, their biggest threat. And then they, the island is tiny. The water is always really high. It's shaped like a triangle. It's only less than half a football field long, or maybe a half a football field long, 50 yards long and 25 yards, 30 yards wide. So there was no place for these children to go. They just ran around because if you dove in the water, you would die of hypothermia. The water is so cold at that time of year. So they they killed, you know, 10 of the 12 Indians. Two fell in the river and actually survived. And then they waited till sunrise. Hannah Dustin scalped the 10 victims. She was a 39-year-old woman and mother of uh, nine children. And then they stole two Indian an Indian canoe and they paddled all the way back to Haverhill, Massachusetts, and she survived. The main reason for her resolve for getting um, that far just after having given birth to her 10th or 12th child, but her ninth surviving child, the reason why she resolved, I think, to survive the march and to wreak some kind of revenge on the Abenaki was they murdered her infant, a week old infant, by smashing its head against a tree as she was taken captive. So this story, I grew up with this story. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, you must be really familiar with it growing up in that town. There's a statue of her near near City Hall and the library and the police department in Haverhill, Massachusetts. It's about, you know, it's oxidized, so it's turned green, you know. It's probably about eight feet tall uh, figure of a woman in front frontier dress with a hatchet in one hand and a brace of scalps in the other hand. And... uh I we saw that every summer when we went to the beach. That's the that would be the ride that the way that my dad would drive us to the beach. And when I was twelve years old, thirteen years old, I was in the back of the station wagon with my four siblings and probably one of my knucklehead buddies from the neighborhood and I said to my dad, Hey, what's with the lady with the statue? What's with the lady on the statue with the hatchet? And my father said, That's Hannah Dustin. She killed the Indians. Now shut up back there. Because like taking six kids to the beach is like a like taking a barrel of monkeys to the circus. Gosh. So I grew up curious about it. There's not a lot of first like um, primary material. There really isn't. I mean, there's some material that was written by Samuel Sewell and Cotton Mather right after it happened, and then I found some rare material from a clergyman, a, a Protestant minister from Newbury, Massachusetts, by the name of John Pike. He wrote it in his journal, his diary, because someone had told him about it. So that helps verify the dates. Both Mather and and Sewell and this guy, John Pike, had the same dates. She was taken captive March 15th. She escaped on March 30th. She returned home on April 2nd. So that story 
I knew that was a good book, but I didn't want to spend three years in the library in no time outdoors. And I wanted to write it like a novel. I wanted it to read like a thriller, kind of like the the movie The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. only yeah. with a woman as the protagonist. And in this climate, this political climate in the United States, having a woman take her own measures against like patriarchal oppression is a really resonant theme. I mean, yesterday I gave a talk to the Massachusetts Court of Appeals judges and lawyers and staff that lasted an hour, and all they wanted to talk about was a massacre on the Merrimack. So to make that story come alive, Chris Pierce and I took two winter trips in a regular canoe because there was no way we could build one of those Abenaki canoes. They were just a marvel of engineering. Super light spruce boughs with birch bark covering like just amazing how they were able to make them and then they use pine pitch to like caulk all the seams so we used a regular canoe we had modern gear uh, we would wear a wetsuit underneath a dry suit with with uh, dry bags in the canoe with change of clothes food ability to start a fire if we needed one and even so we got in the water, and Chris is a better paddler than me, certainly more experienced, lived in Montana and Alaska for several years. He was in the stern. I was in the bow. And as soon as we entered the current, it's not a trout stream. It's not a narrow, fast-moving river. It's the third largest river in New England, and it runs from Lake Winnipesaukee to, uh, down to Rye, Rye, um, Plum Island, Massachusetts. And it's wide. At places in the summer, you know, when it's low water, there's places as wide as a half mile and there's places as narrow as like a quarter mile. But it's a big, broad river, some rapids and some drop-offs and some small sets of waterfall and a couple dams in Massachusetts. But where we were in March in 2014 and then again 2015 when I did it again for the New York Times, it was a mile wide. So it was way over the banks. So the water is way out into the woods on either side. There's huge ice flows, like big chunks of ice coming down from northern New Hampshire, down trees, tree branches, all these obstacles in the water. And if you strike one, if you strike one of those, you know, big chunks of ice and you capsize, even in a dry suit, in a wetsuit, it's 50-50, whether you're going to be able to swim that extra three quarters of a mile in that water to get through the woods and get on dry land and drag a dry bag along with you and change. So as soon as we got in the water and the, we had a lot of equipment, and the water was running about three inches below the gunnels of the canoe. My friend, Chris, who's probably like the calmest, you know, unflappable guy I've ever done anything with said, this is pretty sketchy. And I was like, it is pretty sketchy. <laughs> And then we were like, okay, so let's keep going. So the first year we did about nine river miles. It took about four or five hours. Um, we did it for the book, so we didn't have a photographer with us or anything. And we didn't have as much gear because we weren't staying overnight. But when we got to where we, we left one of the trucks that we were using to ferry the canoe back and forth, we didn't scout the riverbank, which was a mistake. It was like something that is not typical of the thoroughness through that we try to apply to these kind of adventures. So when we got to the area where we knew the car was within a mile and a half walk, 
the bank was about seven feet high above the river, undercut with tree, tree roots hanging down. And there was no place to just beach the canoe. So I was like, this isn't going to be easy to get out of here and get the canoe out. So Chris steadied the canoe against the riverbank by sticking the, his paddle into the tree roots. And then I stood up in the canoe, which was not a good, you know, not easy, not, a, not, not really a type of thing I would want to do. But to get out, I had to. And then I had to jump for a tree branch pull myself up in like a pull-up and then kip over onto the bank so I was on solid ground, take the paddle from him and stick it down and try to like steady the canoe so he could do the same thing. Well, it was easier with his 200 pounds in the canoe plus the gear plus the paddle and the tree roots to hold the canoe steady. When it was his turn, canoe wobbled and he went right into the drink, right up to his neck. And his face went white as a potato, like in about five seconds. His lips were white. His, his, it was just amazing transformation because of the cold water. And he said, he, he was like barely able to talk. He was like, dude, I can't believe I'm going hypothermic already. He had to get out. He had to climb back into the canoe. And then I had to help him get up. Then we had to get the canoe up, got the canoe up on the shore, put the, put the uh, dry bags on the ground. He ripped open one of the dry bags, stripped down naked, put on his dry clothes and dry boots, looked at me and said, take care of all this. And then he just ran off through the woods because he had to get dry clothes and get moving, or it was going to be an ER visit at the very least. That was like an eye opener. And then the next year, the New York times was like, yeah, why don't you do it again and do it overnight? And I was like, I said to Chris and he was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it overnight, man. (laughs) So he he was all about it, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So we did the same thing, same conditions, same amount of cold water, same gear, except we had to bring camping gear. And we went all day. And then we got about probably about eight river miles, nine river miles down. And we found a sliver island. These are unnamed islands, which are very common in the in the Merrimack River. This one was shaped like an almond, probably be this closest thing or a pumpkin seed. And it was only about, I'd say, 150 yards long and 40 yards wide at the widest point, And it was all covered in brush. It was completely tangled on a growth. So we had to find a place where we could birth the canoe. And then we had to find a place that was big enough clearing to like put up a couple tents. So that was hard enough just getting there. But the photographer, and this was not the guy I usually work with. The photographer was uh, kind of a prima donna. He said he was an expert paddler, but he didn't have his own kayak and he decided he would just shoot the photos from various places along the river bank. He would drive his car ahead of us, try to find his way back to the river and take pictures of us. But he said he was going to camp with us. So we assumed, since he said he was an expert paddler, that he had gear and he had a PFD, you know, personal flotation device, and he had everything he needed. And then we met him just as the sun was going down, and he was like two, 300 yards downriver from the place that we decided we were going to camp. So that's an obstacle because we had, now we have to go against the current in, in the, not quite dark, but in the encroaching darkness, we have to go upstream with the obstacles, like the tree branches and chunks of ice coming toward us. And the guy gets in the canoe, gets all his gear in the canoe. So now we have three guys 
and three sets of equipment. The canoe's barely like not shipping water. Like we're barely above the water level. And we get a hundred yards out from the shore. And the guy says, I don't have a life vest on. By now you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. The Adventure Sports Podcast is also brought to you by Powder 7 Ski Shop. Powder 7 is Colorado's premier homegrown and family-owned ski shop. Online at powder7.com, they offer a huge selection of new and used ski gear, plus full tech and boot fitting services at their shop in Golden. With personalized customer service, they set up skiers from all over the world with perfect gear. From brands like Kessley, Rosignol, Black Crows, and Head, Powder 7 is all skiing all the time. So check out Powder7.com to learn more. Now, back to the episode. If I turn around to look at him, the canoe's going to go over. Yeah. So I can't turn around. I'm in the bow. And I'm saying to myself, Chris is not going to care because like, we can't, we can't do anything about that. So Chris said, we can't do anything about that. And the guy said, well, I have an idea. Why don't you paddle back to where we started, and Jay can give me his PFD, and then you paddle me out to the island, and then you paddle back to get Jay, and then you come back. So now you're taking the trip four times in the dark. And, uh, Chris, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way Chris is going to go for that. And Chris says to the guy, there's no way I'm going for that. So sit down in the bottom of the canoe and shut up. And then we were, you know, now we're nervous. Like, we have – PFDs on and we have wetsuits and dry suits and this guy has outer outerwear, you know, he has gear on, but he doesn't have anything to keep him from going under the water. So now we have to get there without any incident. And we made it. We made it we had to go upstream, get above the island, and then let the current take us downstream. And then we saw a tree that had fallen into the shallows that had like a V shaped trunk. And Chris, I saw it. I didn't say anything. I couldn't turn around. And Chris said, you see it? I go, I see it. And we got the current to take us right into it. So it was almost like landing your canoe in a little marina. And like, we just, just barely hit it right. Got between a couple of rocks and then slipped into this, like crotch in the tree that would fallen into the water. And Chris was like, wow. And I was like, like butter, brother, like butter. Like we got lucky. <laughs> and, then, and then we got out, right? And we yeah. got out and we started clearing. It's dark, so we had a little like uh, battery-operated lantern, so we started clearing space for our tent. The photographer is, walks off in the other direction. He sets up his own tent. Like He had his own gear. You could tell he'd been outside before, but the fact that he didn't 
he was an expert paddler, so-called, and didn't have any, like, life vests with him. It was kind of odd. So he was mad at us, and he separated off from us. So we were like, eh, who cares? So we're making, we're making dinner. You light a fire, and as soon as he smells the hot food, he comes over, and he's our best buddy again. Oh, so yeah. Oh, we, yeah. Hey, food, man. talking to him, you know. Chris was like, he's, he's a pretty friendly guy, so he's like, yeah, all right, so we'll just make small talk. Then we get in the tent. And, uh, you know, it's like 9 o'clock at night, but we've been all going all day, so we're tired. We get in the two-man tent, or three-man tent, but with Chris, it's like two-man tent. So we get in there, and uh, we're sitting like next to each other, like shoulder to shoulder, looking up at the tent. And, like, I figure he's asleep, so I'm not going to talk. After a little while, I'll just not talk. So I'm laying there for, like, 45 minutes, and it's about it was about 18 degrees. So it was like I had a regular a regular down sleeping bag i didn't have like a arctic winter sleeping bag so i'm in a new set of clothes new socks new hat everything i'm inside my sleeping bag so i'm i'm safe i'm not gonna freeze to death but it's too cold to sleep so i'm sitting there i'm sitting there i'm sitting there and i'm thinking chris is asleep and all of a sudden he goes let's get up and go for a walk this is bull-. so i was like okay so we need to move around. Yeah. Like yeah. we're laying in the tent at like 11 o'clock at night. It's like too cold to sleep. Yeah. So like, let's get up. So we put our boots on and now like we want to, there's a full moon has come out. So it's black sky, black trees all, all around. You can hear the river. The river is like three quarters of a mile wide. There's all kinds of stuff floating down. It's pretty awesome. It was pretty, we weren't too far from Nashua, New Hampshire, maybe 10 miles as the crow flies. But it could have been the middle of Alaska. Like, there's no one is going to help you there. So we got out of we got out of the tent, and we started getting warm by like there's all these down trees and underbrush, and we had to climb over stuff and everything. And Chris was heading. I knew exactly where he was going. Down river at the end of the pointy part of the almond, you know, like the pointy part of the island, we saw a little beach, and from there we could get a good vantage point on the whole river and the full moon. So it took us about. 20 minutes to get over all this like brush and everything to get to where we could break into the open and we could see the moon. So the moon's right over the river. It's making a silver path right down the river on both sides of the Island. And then we could see the shadow of like trees and everything floating by. And it was, you know, 15 degrees out and we're looking down river and, you know, we've been out in the woods a lot together. You don't have to talk about every tiny thing that we see. So he's about 30 feet away. We're looking down river and uh, he looks up at the moon, looks around. And we're both thinking about how the hell did Hannah Dustin do this for three days straight with the possibility of like hostile Indians chasing her because she'd killed their friends. And she's in a canoe that she'd never been in a canoe before and never paddled before. How did she do it? Like, cause we have yeah. all the gear. Yeah. We're guys. Nobody's chasing us. And it's like, oh, you're, this is hard you're as nourished. hell. You're, ma- like, you're not malnourished. You're not facing all this emotional trauma, physical trauma. Right. You're, right. Yeah, you've got everything you need. And you've got the, uh, I don't know, man. I, I was thinking about it, actually, when I was looking through your book and reading some of it. Just, it's mind-blowing how tough that must have been. And you know better than anybody after retracing those steps. 
Yeah, I mean, our thing was the modern version, and it was hard enough for me. So what what does like, that make you Chris feel I, they were going through? Do you, do you does that make you respect her more? Because I know her story is controversial, and it is controversial whether she was. Yeah, but but what is that? I mean, just the, the sheer feat is mind-bogglingly difficult. <laughs> yeah. So what? And Chris summed it up because we were we were staying there for about ten minutes, and now we're comfortable. Like we're in good clothes, like good out outerwear and good base layers, and we're comfortable. So we're just sort of contemplating the river, we're thinking about our ordeal, and it's quiet for a few minutes. And then Chris says, "Some people are just survivors, man." <laughs> that summed it up yeah. for me. Like yeah. we think in the 21st century as a bunch of rugby players, and you know, we're, some of us are experts at certain things. Like Chris is an expert snowboarder, split border. But for the most part, we're kind of like generalists, like athletic generalists, and um, we think we're pretty tough. Like in terms of when people find out about that pond hockey game at eight below zero when people find out about the river trips, they're like, no way would I do that. So we think, you know, well, we're doing some stuff that's like out there. Like it's not it for everybody. But when we think about what we were doing and compared to what she had to do, it's apples and oranges, baby. Like it's totally different ball game. Um, yeah. She's fighting for her life. Mm-hmm. And when, and, there's no help around. Like for us, if we could get to shore, we could hike maybe two, three miles. We could get somebody to call the police and we could get help. Right. Um, right. So it would suck. It would be terrible to have to leave the island at night and get someone across, like if the guy, other guy had been injured or something like that. But we could do it. They had no choice. They had no Nobody was going to help them for about a 90-mile canoe ride in a vessel they'd never been in before except to get out to that little island. Right. So it's totally like that made me um, write the book in a different way. I did it on purpose, but I had done some uh, snowshoeing and some cross-country skiing and some straight-up hiking in the snow like on what I figured was her most likely route um, when they were taken captive and taken up river. I, I did that, and that was hard, but I could do it in little stretches. I could do, like, five miles and then have, you know, a friend meet me and pick me up or have a buddy go with me and leave two cars. This was different. This was like we were going to be gone for two days, and that experience and the experience of those hikes in the snow, like, through Haverhill up into, like, southern New Hampshire into places like uh, Sandown and Fremont, places like that, I would just do them in sections, um, that made the book a different book. That made the book not just some dry historical account, but like an adventure novel. Um, and otherwise, I wouldn't want to do it. I, I wouldn't do that kind of book. And everyone's like, what made you do this kind of book? Are you going to do another one of these historical narratives? Yeah, I'm like, I was no, going to ask that. Are you doing another one? Never like again. It? Never again, huh? No, it's too much research. Um, the book market is shrinking. So even though I've published books in New York, all eight books in New York and have two new books like in, in close to fruition, uh, almost done. Like the amount of money that they will advance you to risk on projects has shrunk. So if I'm going to get small advances, I'm going to, I'm going to just do adventure journalism and then write fiction because I can, and it's fun. 
and you don't have to uh you don't usually get any money up front like you do for a nonfiction book. And also like I can do whatever I want. I don't have to like decide what's the most commercially viable project. Um so that's what I've been doing lately is pitching these adventure stories to magazines and newspapers and writing fiction where I can do it at home, saving time for the adventures that I want to do with my friends just for fun. We we actually had a big conversation the other day between Joe Clementovich and Chris Pierce and I saying, let's go up to these new mountain biking trails up in Rumney, New Hampshire, which is where we do the DIY triathlon. Right. And, uh, let's go for a ride. It's, it's supposed to be, you know, there's like 25 miles and it's supposed to be fast and flowy. Let's go up for a ride. The three of us, like without doing a story, like he called it sand story. And I was like, yeah, that's weird. Like everything we do, I'm writing about this time. Like we just go for the day and I don't have to write anything. I don't have to bring my notebook with me. So, you know, so far, so far, so good. I mean, we have, three more things planned. And then I have some ideas that uh, Joe and I, I've put together a book proposal for a nonfiction book, which would be like an adventure story. We would get to go to some major locations in the U S and do these adventures and link them together into a story. So I um, got to the point where that's the only kind of uh nonfiction book I want to do is something where someone will pay me to go on an adventure. And then for fiction, I just want to write, you know, I wrote a crime novel that I'm just about done with. The the fiction that I'm doing is related to my other beat as a reporter, which is investigative journalism. And I've done a lot of work like going out with undercover uh, law enforcement operatives and their confidential informants. I've seen drug deals and takedowns of drug dealers and stuff like that. So I've done that as a journalist and I'm using all that information and all that experience that I gathered that I can't share, like, uh, because guys would lose their jobs. Like some of the guys that were law enforcement mm-hmm. would lose their jobs. If I told exactly how it was done, how the cases were made. Um, a lot of the stuff is gray area stuff when you're dealing with bad guys, like guys that are murderers, and drug dealers. So that, that kind of stuff, I can take all the stuff I couldn't write for Boston Globe magazine or Men's Health or any of the other magazines that I've written for, and I could turn it into fiction and protect everybody. So that allows me, I can work on that in the afternoon after I get back from like doing a swim at Walden Pond in Concord or something like that. So, I mean, I, I can't think, if someone would have told me when I was 18, you know, when you're like a grown man, you're going to be hanging around with your rugby friends, getting paid to write adventure stories. I would have said, get out of here. <laughs> no way that's going to happen. Yeah. Like when I was, when we were climbing the Manning Chapel at Acadia University, if one of my friends said, someday you're going to get paid to like go to Montana and bike the going to the Sun Road and then swim across Lake Anderson and then play rugby in Missoula and then go whitewater rafting uh, on the Wyoming border, I would have said, that ain't going to happen. But that happened. Like, it's amazing. I got lucky. I got lucky with the people that I met and the sports that I played and the places that I played them where I met the people that were the ones that would be just crazy enough to go on these ventures with me and have somebody to go with. Do you encourage your students to, to do things like you do? 
Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about BU, it's a big school. It's Division One athletics. It's 30,000 people, uh, 30,000 students and as many staff and faculty and support people. And hockey is like football is at, you know, Auburn or Alabama. Like ice hockey at BU is uh, they're nationally ranked. Typically, they've been in the national championship in the last few years. Their athletes are elite they get full scholarships. Uh, many of them sign. Three of my students have already signed contracts with NHL teams. Instead of putting them back into like putting them into the American Hockey League, low, you know, the next level of professional athletes, they let them go back to university hockey because it's so fast and so skillful and it's better for developing them. So I have track athletes and and hockey players and soccer players and lacrosse players, both men and women in my classes. And I talk to them about this stuff all the time. Like, this is the kind of thing that you should be doing with your friends. And I remember in the summer, I got I got an email from a kid named Jake, who's a Massachusetts guy. He lives in Massachusetts, plays hockey for BU. And then two of his teammates, I know them quite well. One kid's from Nova Scotia and the other kid's from Illinois. They're all in my class and they sent me a picture of them and they were up in Northern New Hampshire and they went mountain biking and paddling and they sent me a picture. They were like, so they got together with guys on the team that are professional. They're already signed professional contracts, two or the three guys. Um, so they got together with two other guys that they really trusted and they went out and did that kind of thing. They, this guy, his family has a house on a lake up there, the kid Jake from Massachusetts. And he took the two other guys with him and they went up and they did a whole weekend of stuff off season, you know, nothing that would interfere with their training schedule and also safe enough to where it would be unlikely. Cause if they got a bad injury, that would end their careers. Um, so it was safe enough to where, you know, you could fall off your bike, I guess, or you could fall out of a kayak, but it was safe enough to where it was, you know, it was difficult, but it wasn't too dangerous. And they were like, you're right. This is pretty cool. And it's the kind of, you know, it's the kind of thing they probably did when they were like in high school, but now that they're 21, 22 and they're getting close to professional careers, like I said, you know, you should read more books and you should go outdoors more because it gives you a different perspective. You guys have an advantage. You're going to travel all over the world because of your sport by reading, you know, Jack London and Siegfried Sassoon and Robert uh, Robert Graves and some of these great narrative writers, Michael Hare, writing about adventure. Like, when you get to go to Sweden or the Soviet Union to play hockey, you're going to just have a different point of view. Born from logging and exploration, Danner Boots is a Pacific Northwest original. Every boot is handmade to hold up in unforgiving conditions, and live up to their unyielding standards. The Stronghold Work Boot is what happens when more than 85 years of legendary quality, durability, and heritage runs into modern construction, technology, and materials. You get tomorrow's classic today, the Stronghold Work Boot. Check them out or find a local store at danner.com. I, man, I, I feel you so much. I, I used to play basketball. I played a year in college, and... You know, guys, the basketball, professional basketball world is international. Uh, you know, for the lower, you know, the farm leagues, there's not tons here. 
there is the G League, but tons of it is overseas. And I would just be like, if you're going over there, man, don't just be there for basketball. You have such an opportunity to learn so much about the world. And so usually when I do a bike trip, I try to read about, you know, the historical figures, about the cultural influences of that place. And it's frustrating because when you actually do go, you realize, man, there's so much more I could have learned before I left that would have totally opened my eyes to even, so many more in, things. Yeah, it would have enriched it even more. Even more, and, and there, but there's more. only so much time at least I you have, did. you know? <laughs> right, but at least you did some of it. Like, yes. some people just don't do any of it. Right, right. So it's sort of like when when I had this grad student of mine, Graham, came last year for the DIY triathlon, and he was he was um, main uh, Division II Athlete of the Year as a cross-country runner at, uh, I think he was at Bates College for undergraduate school, and then BU for grad school. And um, he just, like, he he waxed us. He's only, like, 24 years old, and he did the swim in, like, half the time that I did it in. And then he biked like he was out of his mind, and then he, like, climbed up Rattlesnake Mountain. So we don't we don't have, like, first, second, and third. There's no finish line. But, I mean, this kid was just wailing. And he was uh, he was just good at everything. And my friends liked him. He's a very mellow kid from Maine. And uh, very athletic guy. And he said, he said, this trip was a lot of fun because I see it's about who you go with. I go, yeah, it's all, it's all about that, man. That's for sure. Absolutely. And then for my class, just before he graduated with his master's in journalism, they had to do a narrative story and he was looking for an idea. And I said, why don't you see if there's any bike messenger services in Boston and then, and then trail one of them for a day, like ride with the bike messenger. And I guess law firms still use them because you have to have true signatures on things. You can't fax them. Uh, so yeah, that makes sense. He, he in Boston is very narrow streets, bad drivers, like notoriously bad drivers, rude drivers, people that ignore signs, ignore traffic lights. And there's places where five roads meet in the middle of it's all cobblestones. It's real dangerous on a bike. And he went with a, a young woman who was a bike messenger and she had cycled professionally before that. And she's probably about 30 and she stayed in the business. She, she went into the bike messenger business cause she missed the adrenaline of being a pro. So he said she was on a fixed gear bike and she ignored every red light and she biked at like a full spin. So he was on a mountain bike and he was trying to keep up with her. And if he lost her, the story would grind to a halt. So she would go right through <laughs> Kenmore Square, which is like death-defying, at 25 miles an hour over these cobblestones. <laughs> and he had to follow her. He was like, oh that was sketchy. Yeah, I go, okay. Graham, I'm glad you didn't get killed. Probably get fired. Right. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, if you got he, was like, sure. he was like, compared to that, the DIY triathlon was easy. I go, yeah, for you it was easy because you're 24 years old, you know? Yeah, so you, you, you've been, uh, have you been fortunate enough to avoid uh, injuries? No. I've had, I've had like six, six surgeries. Um, <laughs> so no. Things related to hockey and rugby. Um, and then now I have like just from repetitive use and repetitive injuries, like, Yoga has been a big help. I still do like circuit training, strength training, yoga. And then I do more biking than running 
than trail running now. And swimming's good. Swimming in cold water is good because it helps reduce inflammation. So I have to like, I don't want to do, there's a couple surgeries that my, my orthopedic ankle guy would do. If I said, Hey, you want to do my ankle? He would do it. He would say, yeah, you should do it. And there's another, another surgery I could get like on my hip, but I don't want to because I don't want to miss six months. Who knows how much longer this is going to go on. That's one thing. Right. Right. You get a perspective when you're out in the wilderness, like even if it's your local wilderness, which is part of my message, like get out in your local town forest and protect it from development by using it for passive recreation. Um, and then they won't be keen to sell it off to some like condo company. So one of the things I think about when I go snowshoeing in this real hilly portion of our town forest that borders with the Pelham, New Hampshire town forest. So it's pretty big park. Like it's pretty large and it's a lot of gullies and streams and there's no one in there. And I get to go there for two hours on a Sunday and then I'm only 10 miles from my house. And a lot of times when I'm doing it, it's a really clear cold day in January, February. I'm thinking like, you got to thank your lucky stars for this because you're not always going to be able to do this. Like I've been doing it for a long time and it's like, just be able to get out and get a real hard workout in two hours and not see another soul and be in the middle of the woods with the with snowy trees all around. Like that's a blessing. I'm grateful for that. And I think when you go outside, especially in the U S with such great parcels of open land, same in Canada, you should be thankful that you've got it because if you left it up to like the fracking industry, it would be gone. It would be all gone. So if we don't use it and show that a majority of people respect and love the outdoors and see it as an important part of the human experience, then we're all going to suffer, especially the next generation. Right, right. Absolutely. So if uh, people want to find out more about the books you've written or uh, about your stories and about your articles, how can they find out more? Where's the best place to go? There's, yeah, there's three ways. They can go onto Amazon and go onto my page. So just go into the Amazon search box, click on books, and then type Jay Atkinson, and they can see all eight of my books. They can go to jayatkinson.com where they can see a lot of my articles and some photography of, like, different outdoor sports, you know, outdoor adventures that I've had recently, including some phenomenal pictures that were taken by a combat photographer, a friend of mine by the name of Jody Hilton. She happened to be in New Hampshire when um, the ice was perfect at my brother's house on a lake. And she took some pictures of me and my nephews at, at sundown, like maybe four winters ago that are just really cool. And some of those are up there. And then on Boston university's website, when you go into the College of Arts and Sciences search box or just the BU search box generally, and you type in my name, you could see, you could find some thumbnails that explain what I teach, uh, narrative storytelling, journalism, freshman composition, Jack Kerouac and the Beat Generation class. The stuff that I, that I, that I do as a teacher is there. And now we're developing new class. Joe Klementovich and I are going to teach a class called Words and Images on Multimedia Adventure Storytelling. Um, so all that's up on the College of Communications website. So it's Amazon, jayatkinson.com, and Boston University's website. You can find out what I'm doing. And if you want to connect with me, you know, my email is there on Boston University's website. And then I can 
you could tell me about your adventures in Illinois or Colorado, and I could tell you about ours, you know, trying to get sort of like an unofficial association of thinking people's adventures, like kind of like adventures, the Renaissance adventurer, like somebody who reads books, who also likes to go outside. Um, Last year when we were doing that pond hockey thing, we went to a local tavern that's owned by a rugby guy. And I met Tom Pollard, who summited Everest, and he was like the nicest guy. And uh, he he was sitting with us at our table, and one of the guys at the table, the guy that owned the Wildcat Tavern, which is where we were, he had a few drinks in him. He's all excited. I'm his friend, and Joe Clementovich is his friend, and he's introducing us to this guy that climbed Everest. And he said to Tom, he goes, I got a great idea for you. Every year, New England rugby hosts the old man of the mountain tournament over 40 tournament in Franconia notch. And you should come out and play rugby. This guy's probably about 50 and he's in excellent condition. And so Stu's telling him you should come out and play rugby with us for the first time ever. And then Jay can write about it for like New Hampshire magazine or Yankee or something like that. And like, there's a bunch of other chatter at the table. So for, for a few minutes, Stu, the guy that's the owner of the, tavern he, he gets distracted and tom pollard looks at me and he doesn't have any experience in rugby at all although he summited efforts and he said to me what do you think about this because he's he's not a very big guy i'm not either but he's a small guy and he doesn't have any rugby history and he said what do you think about me going out and playing in this tournament like one game with no experience i leaned over to pollard and i said this is like when someone who's had four drinks says to you, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. <laughs> and he laughed. So it, the, it, the evening continued. So now it's like an hour later, and the place is full. There's a good people playing music. There's a restaurant and everything. So Stu gets the idea. He's the owner of the place. Let's go out in the lobby, and we'll put together a rugby scrum just with the people at the table and we'll show Tom like how it works. And I was like, this is a dumb idea. Okay, let's do it. So we go out in the lobby, there's tourists from like Connecticut and stuff walking by looking at us. And we bind into like a mini scrum and Pollard's girlfriend was there, a very attractive young woman. And uh, he took one look at the scrum and like the, our faces, the expressions on our faces. And he ran and he jumped up in his girlfriend's arm and started sucking his thumb. This guy climbed Everest. Like it was hilarious. <laughs> and we were we were cracking uh, up and I was thinking, see if I wasn't doing these adventures with the rugby guys, I wouldn't be here right now. Right, I wouldn't have right. met Tom Pollard. He's a great guy. He's doing another expedition coming up where they're gonna try to find Sandy Irvine's body, I think it is, the one that died with Mallory. And he's going up there again. So like to sit and talk with him for two hours and laugh about stuff and, you know, tell stories with him and his girlfriend and Stu and my rugby friends, like that's worth a million dollars to me right there. You know, that's just the kind of, the kind of people you're probably looking for to connect with, you know, that are humble, that have done amazing things, but can tell you the story and not, not come across as unapproachable about it. Yeah, the guy was so laid back. He was just like, you wouldn't have known he climbed Everest. I have one last story, which is related to that. And that was 
Back in the 90s, I was with surfer John Heron, who's my best friend from University of Florida, rugby days, ex-Marine, uh, works at NASA as an aerospace engineer, and he also has a PhD in ocean engineering. And he and I went, he went around the world for five years. He hadn't been married yet, and he took his retirement early, and he left NASA. And I went for the first eight weeks to Europe and North Africa with him, and we went to Pamplona, and we ran with the Bulls. So we finished the run. We got into the plaza right outside the NCRO, like right outside where the bull ring is. And that's where Hemingway sat and drank with the people that became the characters and the sun also rises. So it's eight o'clock in the morning. The place is teeming with, with, you know, locals that are there for the NCRO and then other people, tourists from everywhere. They're already serving beers at the outdoor cafes and we get three beers and you're just, it's stopped. I've been in, you know, championship wrestling matches. I've been in the national championship rugby game. Most adrenaline I ever felt in my life. One of the peak experiences of my life. Very, very fascinating, very dangerous, very, like, emotional and historical and religious experience. Because to them, the Festival of San Fermin is a religious festival. So we're sitting there with this guy that we met accidentally right after the run. He was in the NCRO. He was in the bull ring with us. He was a young guy. He was a special for U.S. Special Forces captain from the Midwest somewhere. And he was sitting there having a beer with us. We we're standing there just totally adrenalized, 8 o'clock in the morning. And he says, just, you know, looks at John and I, and he says, uh, you know, I've been to Carnival in Rio and I've been to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, and I've been to the Oktoberfest in Munich. But this is the best party in the world. Wow. And we said, why do you say that? And he said, because of the element of danger. And then we just clinked glasses, and we were like, amen, brother. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show, or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us, please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is 812-624-5763. You can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast and links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP 20 at checkout. Thank you.